Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Heidi Tandy, who is of counsel and the IP department chair at Price Benowitz LLP, as well as being a legal committee member uh, in the Organization for Transformative Works. And we are going to discuss her work on fan fiction and intellectual property, uh, including her work in progress, Can You Tarnish Voldemort? So welcome to the show, Heidi. Hi, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. Oh, my pleasure. And I'm really excited to talk uh, about your work, which is really interesting. And I was wondering if you could start out uh, for some listeners who might not be that familiar uh, with with fan fiction by just explaining what fan fiction is, what it looks like, you know, what's sort of the history of fan fiction and, and where would people look for it? Well, fan fiction is everywhere. Fan fiction is in West Side Story and Sunday in the Park with George and uh, The Lion King, if you believe, as most people do, that it's a retelling of Hamlet, but with animals. So all those kinds of stories that we just have as part of our culture are different kinds of examples of a fan work. A fan work is anything that is inspired by something else. And there's been like a long running meme within various fandoms that the Renaissance was the high point for fan art because everybody was doing their Bible-based fan works and putting them on you know, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and things like that. So any kind of creativity that is a follow-on work that's inspired by something else, like R.E.M.'s I Am Superman, um, all of that meets the criteria of what a fan work is. Some fan works, um, fan fiction, is real person fan fiction. You can see that sort of thing on Broadway in Hamilton. Um, Other kinds of fan works are, like I said, um, either animated or updated versions of classical stories that we know from the past. And then, of course, there's the fan fiction that people write and share for free on the internet, which is how most people interact with fan fiction or fan works on a daily basis, but also Sometimes companies like Disney will go to people who are known fans of Star Wars and put together a um, large compendium of short stories that are all inspired by A New Hope, i.e. Episode 4, i.e. the first Star Wars movie from 1977, which has, I think, about 40 stories by different well-known famous writers in it that are all inspired by a certain point of view, which is why that's what it's called, a certain point of view. So that's published fan fiction that's authorized and licensed by the creator, but it's still fanfic because it's written by people who are writing something that isn't necessarily at the time of writing authorized by the creators of it. Okay. So if I understand you correctly, you're kind of adopting a, a pretty capacious definition of, of fan fiction there, yes. right? It's sort of like any work that is responding to a previously existing work and responding and it's sort of written for the audience that appreciated that previously existing work would, you know, to a greater or less degree, seems like it would fit into the category that you're describing. Exactly. And most fan fiction is written out of a love of the original source material. There have been disputes and complaints from authors 
you know, even as recently as four, five, seven years ago, I won't name her by name, who don't understand that fan works are created by people who love the source material and want to delve deeper into some aspect of it. Sometimes it's something that they so absolutely love. Sometimes it's something they want to try and predict the next part of the story in. Sometimes it's something that they don't necessarily like. So they'll write some fix it fic to keep a character alive who may have had to, you know, leave a show in a previous series because they got a better job or, you know, something health related. And that's, you know, that's a term of fix it thick. And then there are authors like JK Rowling, who absolutely support creative fan writers. And I don't mean support in the, you know, financial or pecuniary sense, but they are absolutely okay with people being inspired by their stories and their universe and what they've done and created, that they are happy for people to go and create new works and share them, especially uh, if they're being shared for no additional cost. So in a lot of cases, fanfic is just given away for free on the internet. Um, There's a long history of fanzines, which are printed out and sold, but they're usually just sold for the cost of printing something. But about three or four years ago, there was a crowdfunding project for a compendium, absolutely gorgeous binding, really great art, um, great quality paper of fan works that were all inspired by the TV show Hannibal. And the show's creators thought that it was fantastic. They tweeted about it and the project ended up getting a lot more attention than it may have originally been expected to get just because people liked what they were doing so much. And that was fan fiction that was quote unquote sold, but nobody was doing it to, you know, make the big bucks. It was just the only way to get this pretty, pretty well-bound, gorgeous book was if people were paying for, you know, the paper and the printing and the shipping and things like that. So that's viable and legitimate and no more commercial usage of things that are distri- things that are created pursuant to fair use than, say, for example, Google Books or the New York Times would be. Right. So it sounds like it's sort of people are creating fan fiction for a lot of different reasons, but maybe one quality that's binding a lot of them together is sort of being a part of and contributing to a community of people who share some sort of work of authorship um, in common or share an appreciation of some work of authorship in common. And it sounds like in some circumstances that sort of – uh, it, it ends up being kind of complementary with or kind of supported by the owners of any copyright or, or trademark rights in those underlying works and sometimes sometimes not? Um, I, I would definitely say more it's more common than not for it to be freely created, freely given within a community. But there are a lot of people who are creating absolutely fantastic fan works that may have an audience of one to seven people. Um, some examples mm-hmm. of that sort of thing are it, while we're putting this together, it's the holiday season and there's an annual event going on called Yuletide. And it's something it's been going on for over 10 years where people do fanfic exchanges in very, very small fandoms. So if there's under a few hundred fan works existing on 
archive of our own and fanfiction.net and a limited amount of Tumblr content, <laughs> although we'll see how that goes next year, um, et cetera, et cetera, then you can offer to write a story for somebody in that small fandom. So, um, you know, a couple of the fandoms that might meet that criteria um, every year get added and you just there's a randomization process and you offer to write things in four or five fandoms and you request things in two or three fandoms and the algorithms match you up and you'll write a story for somebody that may have an audience like I said of just a few people but every so often there's a story that is a fan work that will go completely viral from within the Yuletide um, workspace a couple years ago it was the octopus who captured somebody's video camera and swam away with it filming all the while. And that got noticed on BuzzFeed and it ended up on CNN and it got a lot of mainstream, quote unquote, mainstream media coverage. But it was a fan fiction about an octopus who took a video camera from a diver and swam away with it filming all the while. And it was Absolutely fantastic story. I'm not getting the title exactly right, and I apologize, but it's on an archive of our own, and it's just a very fun read. And that's an example of a fan work that is based on something that, you know, a YouTube video. Um, so it's based on an existing narrative, but it takes it in, you know, a completely genuine and fascinating place. Right. So it's my understanding that it's sort of like, a huge variety of different kinds of fan fiction or fan works, but, but also some kind of like paradigmatic, like genres or formats, which seem to feature heavily in some of the discussion that you have uh, in your paper about kind of reactions to fan fiction by the copyright and trademark owners of underlying works. And I was wondering if you could just describe some of those genres so so listeners have a sense of sort of what intellectual property owners are reacting to. So in a lot of fandoms, um, there are a couple of tropes that show up again and again. And every fandom that has more than 30 fanfics is going to have most of these examples in it. They'll have a high school AU, unless it's an actual set in high school story. If it is a set in high school story, they'll have a Harry Potter AU or a boarding school AU. There's something in space. There's something in the Old West. There is the coffee shop AU where all the characters in question um, either work in or around or hang out at a coffee shop like you know, um, Central Park and the TV show Friends. And those kinds of genre conventions manifest very differently in every single story that people are writing, but they are different ways of rethinking about the characters you like or the tropes or the narrative or the symbolism or something like that and taking it into a different place. All those kinds of stories are generally considered either alternate universe or alternate reality. Um, and when you're going separate from that, um, or even in those kinds of contexts, there's other things that show up often in stories as well, like the whole shipping mentality, which is you want these two characters to get together and the sort of common shorthand for it other than shipping is hashtag now kiss, um, uh -huh. where 
you think that two characters who may already be together in the series, in the book, in the film, in the comic strip, whatever, in the um, Broadway musical, um, you think that they should be together, but they might not be. It might not be where the story is going. It might not be where the story is yet. So those kinds of stories, you know, those kinds of romances are things that show up very often. But also, if there's a story that turns on um, a plot line where a certain character has been killed, then there might be a hashtag everybody lives version of it that people are writing or reading or talking about, where they're exploring what would happen if this particular character hadn't been killed in a certain part of the story. And there's different kinds of conventions that, you know, people can use to pull a story around that way. But it, it's something that's incredibly common when you're talking about within a community, people thinking about what they want to write about or read about or think about. Those are definitely some of the milestones that things go through. Okay, cool. So it sounds like the, the phenomenon you're describing is really one in which the most kind of committed consumers of particular works are sort of expressing their engagement with the works in question. In a lot of context, you'd think that, and it sounds like it's the case, that, you know, a lot of copyright and trademark owners would, you know, want to encourage that because it means that, you know, their most engaged fan base is going to be that much more engaged. But it sounds like sometimes there's also some problems in relation to both copyright and and trademark. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about when those problems arise and and why? Um, I don't think at this point it's as much as a problem, uh, much of a problem as people fear it could be or should be. Just because fan works have become relatively normalized in the media landscape, at least in you know the U.S., Canada. Um, Japan also has a very, very vibrant fan culture. I'd want to include the European community in that, but with Article 13 about to hit, nobody knows what that's going to look like in a year, and I'm afraid to predict um, bad horrors and cutting off of access and creativity there. Um, part of the reason why it's not as much of an issue as, I, as it would have been if we'd been having this conversation conversation in 1998 or 2003 is that U.S. law, especially in the Second Circuit, has become a lot more solid in terms of what is permissible under fair use with regard to copyright. Now, the thing is, I'll just say briefly, the thing about trademarks, and this is one of the things I wrote about in my Can You Tarnish Voldemort paper, is because so much of fan works is freely distributed and there isn't commercial usage by the person who is creating and or distributing the fan works, um, the usual trademark infringement issues involving commerciality and likelihood of confusion don't really come up because we're not really talking about a marketplace per se. Um, when it comes to copyright infringement and copyright fair use, of course, it's a different series of issues and those all intersect with fair use. So most fan works, especially the stuff that deviates really, really considerably from the source work, um, is either commenting on, criticizing, analyzing, sometimes educating about um, the story in question. And for all of those reasons, you can look at things through the standard fair use rubric, especially the Second Circuit, which, as we know, is a little bit broader than, say, for example, the Seventh or the Ninth. Uh, 
And for all of these different reasons, you have a lot more wiggle room to be able to say that this particular fan work is a fair use of the underlying copyrightable material. Plus, a lot of people do fan works about characters who might not necessarily be copyrightable. In other words, the characters that fandom may occasionally focus on, I'm not going to say has a tendency to focus on, because believe me, there's a lot of Harry Potter fan art about and fanfic about Harry Potter. Um, But there's also a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. about more minor characters. So if you're going to do, say, for example, something about Professor Sprout or something about Justin Finch Fletchley, then you're talking about characters who might not in and of themselves be copyrightable characters under current U.S. law. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> right. I'm reminded of uh, of Tom Stoppard's, you know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, right? Focusing on a minor character in a major work. Exactly. There is so much Hamlet fan fiction out there. It's fantastic. <laughs> That's so cool. Okay. So what I want to know more about from your perspective is the relationship between fandom communities and the owners of the intellectual property rights in the underlying works. And it sounds like from what you're describing, that's become a much kind of happier relationship over time. But it's my understanding that sometimes there are still problems or conflicts or disagreements. I was wondering you'd talk a little bit about sort of when those disagreements or those tensions arise and where they come from. I mean, when and why do the owners of the intellectual property rights um, object to what to what fandom communities are creating or doing? These days, a lot of those complaints may come from what the powers that be, um, i.e. the copyright owners, are seeing as over-commercialization. And that usually doesn't happen in connection with fan fiction. However, when fan fiction is a script and it gets filmed and it gets distributed on YouTube and people are able to put ads on it and sell DVDs and sell downloads, that's when we get into the issue of the powers that be, the copyright holders, getting twitchy about it, because then there is a possibility that it's going to encroach on their ability to make money off of what their creations are. Um, Obviously, it wouldn't all the time, especially for properties that aren't necessarily um, widely distributed, but for something like Star Trek or Star Wars or Harry Potter, although um, J.K. Rowling has been absolutely fantastic for things like a very Potter musical and Hermione Granger and the Quarter Life Crisis, all of which have been widely distributed on YouTube with millions and millions of views, um, the owners of Star Trek have put out guidelines, and these are about two and a half years old, and they've made a couple updates and. In the, in the interim time. And they say that you're not allowed to use original writers or cast members from any Star Trek property in the film that you're creating to distribute or to put on YouTube. They've put caps on how much fundraising you can do. They've put limitations on the kind of merchandise that you can create and rules about what you can do for titles and rules on the length of something. Now, putting rules on the length of something really just creates a situation where 
if you have a longer series or a longer story that you want to tell, it's going to get parceled out among different people who are going to create and upload different parts of it. But it's not going to make the story any less tellable or accessible. Um, some of their restrictions on how much money can be raised in a crowdfunding process are obviously to keep it from being directly competitive in those different ways. But they haven't, say, for example, they haven't put a bar on the large size of a screen that you want to show something. So if you want to show it, you know, on a big screen at a convention or in a private showing or something like that. There's no bar on your ability to do something like that. After Star Trek put out their rules, a lot of other properties, especially Hasbro owned properties like My Little Pony and Transformers and things like that, have put out their own series of guidelines. Star Wars has long had guidelines. I remember them from the late 90s um, after things like troops were getting distributed. You know, people were handing them around on videotape um, in the office, or at least that's where I got my copy back in 98. And those, you know, those kinds of video stories that people have been creating absolutely forever are things that are going to continue. It's just the way that they can be shown or the way that they can be distributed and the way that you can sell ads on it and things like that are the things that they're trying to put some controls over. Right. So from what you're describing, it sounds like some copyright trademark owners in these works have effectively economic objections, or, or rather when they raise objections, they're driven by the economics of the work. In other words, they don't want to see competing uses of the underlying product. And, you know, that, that makes sense. But it, it, if I understand it correctly, there's also some copyright especially in trademark owners who object for reasons that don't seem to be entirely commercial or entirely based in economics. Is that still something that's happening? Has it changed over time? Well, that's actually something that gets a little bit weird because there have been obviously objections to adult levels of content, both in textual fan fiction as well as in things that get filmed. But it's pretty much um, modus operandi at this point that if the actual literal porn industry wants to film um, comic book heroes or wizards or et cetera, et cetera, in pornographic settings, that is generally seen as parody. Um, it's a matter of case law. There's established law behind that, and that's the situation. But when it's something that is very clearly not a parody situation, like, for example, with Fifty Shades of Grey, um, there was an adult film company that said they wanted to make a parody of Fifty Shades of Grey. But believe me, you cannot parody Fifty Shades of Grey into a porn movie. So Universal basically said that. Um, and the people who were trying to make the adult film told the court that because the story had originally been posted on the internet as Twilight fan fiction, which it was, um, it was in the public domain. Of course, it wasn't in the public domain just because a fan fiction writer posts something on the internet. It does not put it in the public domain. Even if they say, I own nothing, they're probably not jumping through the correct 
and very specific literal hoops that you have to go through to put something in the public domain. And she hadn't even said that. So Universal, we had this situation about five years ago with Universal going to court and saying, no, this adult film version of Fifty Shades of Grey is not taking something that was in the public domain because fan works are not in the public domain. The fanfic writer holds copyright in them. And it can't be a parody because you cannot make a parody of an adult novel by making an adult film version of it. So sometimes the objections are because the follow-on work has adult content, but usually that's when the underlying work has a lot of adult content in it and not just because somebody is doing a porn version of some superhero story. Okay. So I'm interested in what in, in a comment you made about somebody saying, well, you know, it was posted on a fan fiction site, so it was in the public domain. And as lawyers or legal scholars who work in the copyright and trademark area, we know that that's not not an accurate description of of copyright doctrine. But but to what extent is kind of legal doctrine relevant to the people, especially in fan fiction communities? I mean, to what extent do they operate within a framework where, you know, they think about what copyright law and trademark law say about what they're nominally allowed to do? And to what extent do they either ignore it or have ideas about the law that are not necessarily congruent with the actual law as understood by lawyers and the courts? So there's a lot of questions going on in there, and I'll try and sort of piece it out. I actually didn't discover fan fiction until well after law school. I mean, I was vaguely aware of it as a concept, but in the early days of the Harry Potter fandom was when fan fiction as something that I was interested in first crossed my path. And I said, I'm not going to, I'm, I was already doing trademark law, although not very much copyright law at that point. And I said, I'm not going to read this if I'm going to run into a problem with, this being something illegal. So I went on Lexis and I looked for some articles on fan fiction and copyright law, discovered Rebecca Tushnet, who's now a good friend of mine, and felt very comfortable that most of the fan fiction that I was going to stumble across um, within Harry Potter was going to be fine under fair use as it existed circa 2000, 2001. And I started talking about it and I started talking about it on mailing lists and forums and at fan conventions in the summer of 2003. And there has always been a lot of interest in people not wanting to break the law. I mean, there's also been an interest in people doing things that are transgressive and below the radar and a little bit maybe rebellious. So there are some people who were who are very happy to do fan creativity, whether or not it's legal. But there are a lot of people who want to, you know, abide by the law and they don't want to feel like, you know, they're, they're pirates or they're criminals. So there's always been some interest in making sure that, okay, how can we do this legally? So there's a lot of norms that have built up within fan communities that you don't sell your work. 
and you don't put it up on Amazon as an ebook and you go through fan communities and you go through fan structures to make sure that you're doing it within a community and that it's falling under the ambit of fair use. And I know that a lot of people who are operating within the community don't necessarily care about that. But having had, especially now, 11 years of an entity like the Organization for Transformative Work who are going out there and saying fan works are legal and having people like reporters from the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN talking about fan works and having them show up in things like Entertainment Weekly and Time Magazine, where Lev Grossman a few years ago did an absolutely fantastic article about fandom um, as part of the year that you was the person of the year for Time Magazine. All those different things, I think, have made it more understandable within mainstream culture and just ordinary conversations that fan fiction is not some criminal, illegal copyright infringement. They're going to arrest you. You can get thrown out of school thing. That being said, there's always been a concern from people who are worried that writing or reading fan fiction is a violation of their school's policies with regard to fair use, especially because there are a lot of universities and you know, um, elementary and high schools even that have rules both for student and teacher that say what is and isn't fair use where those rules haven't been updated since 2003 or 2006. So if you're abiding by policies from 2003, yeah. then yeah, you might no. not be allowed to do this on a school network, even though it's completely legal under 2018 or 2019 rules. Yeah, no, I've uh, I've had firsthand experience with those kinds of misleading copyright policies um, from my own university. So I understand exactly where you're coming from. Uh, so so it sounds like then the the fan fiction community is actually developing increasingly sophisticated understandings of sort of what their rights are and that maybe their rights are not as limited as a lot of people might've thought they were in the past, that they actually have more freedom to create these kinds of works, more legal freedom and entitlement than people might've thought in the past. And when when cases happen, like Google Books a few years ago, there's enough of us who are lawyers within fandom who go out and talk about those issues. And we talk about them at Intim, we talk about them at you know the Copyright uh, Society conventions and things like that. So the concept is getting out there. And I feel like and I hope that there's more people who are within GC's offices at entertainment companies and publishers and things like that who've come up with some experience of fandom and understand that it's not absolutely 100% all the time an infringement. And once you're coming from that perspective, then you're more welcoming of the idea that this kind of creativity is something that is awesome and absolutely should be shared. Right, right. So I want to just turn it around and look at it kind of maybe from a little another direction just for a second okay. and get your thoughts on this. Because it's, you know, it, it's my understanding that the fan fiction community largely operates within what some might call like a gift economy in the sense that, you know, people are creating these works without expecting to be compensated for them. And they share them with other people in the community you know, because they want to engage in those kinds of conversations, not for kind of commercial, primarily commercial or economic reasons. And I'm wondering, because I don't actually know, is is that always 
the case. And, you know, within the fan fiction community itself, are there ever times where people try to assert control over the fan works that they create? And are there kind of internal norms of the community about like sort of what it's okay and not okay to do, not with the the kind of the source text as it were, but with fan works that other people have created? So I want to do one sort of overarching comment and then tell two stories. Um, the overarching comment is that there's a really big belief that credit is absolutely necessary. So if you're going to link to somebody's story or quote from somebody's story, then linking back to it is absolutely necessary. And story number one is we don't like when outsiders poach our content. A couple of years ago, there was an entity called eBooks Tree, and they scraped an archive of our own, which is the fan fiction site um, that is controlled and managed and organized by the Organization for Transformative Works. And we also think that they scraped fanfiction.net and a few other fan work sites. And they took those stories and they put them on a database and you had to pay to access them. And we couldn't even 100% tell what they had taken or if there were viruses tucked in there, et cetera, et cetera. And we organized from within fandom to basically DMCA the hell out of what it was that they were doing. We went to their domain host, we went to their ISP, we went to their web host, we went to the site itself, and we did takedown after takedown after takedown of all of the different works that they appeared to have put up on there. And the site went offline because they obviously were in violation of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, because you can't take somebody's fan fiction and put it on your own site without their permission, because that's copyright infringement. Yes, you can link to it. Yes, you can take a couple sentence of, sentences of it if you want to link to it. Yes, you can absolutely talk about it. But you can't take wholesale somebody else's work and expect to make some sort of a profit out of it, because those works, as I said before, are not in the public domain, and they're owned by the fanfic writers, and it's as simple as that. Um, story number two is occasionally there are people who feel that any sort of fan work is, I mean, there are still people who feel that any sort of a fan work is an infringement of the rights of the owner or the creator of that work. And I've especially run into this issue with people, unfortunately, from Europe, where they have the moral rights concept still on the books. And that means, for example, if you're writing fan fiction from France, technically you're supposed to give credit under their moral rights law to the person who created the source work, even if the work is in public domain and even if the person is dead. So there have been issues in France in the last 5, 10, 20 years with people writing Les Miserables fanfic and publishing it, including, um, can't even remember the book anymore, but it came out stateside and in the UK, and it was an eponine perspective on Les Miserables, which of course is in the public domain. We're not talking about the musical here, we're talking about the original novel. And it was not properly credited, so Victor Hugo's heirs 
put a stink about it up there and the credit was added and it was tweaked in such a way that it met the moral rights rules. But there were some debates on Tumblr as to whether or not this person should be allowed to profit from Lana's Rob with her story. And of course, in the United States, we wouldn't even blink at that. It's like saying you can't profit off of Shakespeare. Everybody can profit off of Shakespeare. Right. Right. Wow. Well, Heidi, this has been really informative. Thank you so much for this this conversation. I've learned a ton. Thank you for the great questions. Hi, boys and girls. How'd you like to win a brand new bike? Your own life-size doll, a flying airplane, football, or other wonderful prizes. You would? Well, fine. I'll tell you how you can win these wonderful prizes in just a minute. But first, listen to this. Mama? Yes? All our friends are getting Kinney shoes for school. Well, Kinney has more styles they may choose from. Mama, can we get some Kinney shoes for school? You may, cause Kinney shoes are the best values in shoes. If you listen to the radio or watch television, you've probably heard it many times before. So you see, you're halfway toward winning those fabulous prizes already. Cause here's all you have to do. I'm going to play the jingle for you once again. Only this time, I'm going to leave out the last line. You add your own words for the last line, making it rhyme with shoes. That's all you have to do. Now here's the jingle again. Listen carefully. Mama? Yes? All our friends are getting Kinney shoes for school. Well, Kinney has more styles they may choose from. Mama, can we get some Kinney shoes for school? You may, cause Kinney shoes... There. Did you think of the last line then? Not yet, huh? Well, you keep playing the Kinney jingle over and over again until you think of one. Then when you have one, here's what you do. First of all, read all the contest rules and instructions on your entry blank. Then just print your entry plainly and either mail it to your Kinney Shoe Center or better yet, bring it to the Kinney Shoe Center where you got your entry blank and drop it in the contest box yourself. Then you'll see the bikes and prizes on display. You may submit as many entries as you wish, but they must be your own original work. Well, that's all there is to it, boys and girls. Remember, there are deluxe bicycles, life-size dolls, flying airplanes, footballs, and other wonderful prizes. So don't wait. Submit your entries now. All entries must be postmarked not later than Friday, September 30th, 1960. Well, so long now, boys and girls. Good luck. And I hope you win one of the fabulous prizes in our Kinney Back to School Contest. <laughs>